Hey there, it's Jeff MacArthur. Here's what's on the podcast today. Aaron O'Toole gives his first press conference. The province assures us they are ready for back to school and your COVID concerns answered. All that coming up, so let's get to it. Aaron O'Toole, of course, elected the new leader of the Conservative Party early yesterday. And today, Mr. O'Toole held his first press conference as the newly minted leader. He was asked uh, what he would like to do if he were prime minister. Have a listen. As prime minister... I will lead a government that rebuilds our economy and creates long-term, good-paying jobs with ambitious national projects, infrastructure, and federal programs to make it easier for people to get ahead. We will trade freely with free nations and not spend our time chasing trade deals with predatory countries like communist China. We can rebuild our great country while protecting Canadians from the ongoing threat of COVID-19. All right, Erin O'Toole from earlier today. Let's welcome in Adrian Batra, Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Sun. She joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Adrian, good afternoon. Great to be on with you, Jeff. All right, before we get to O'Toole, can we get to the uh, more important and pressing matter? Uh, how's your golf game? Well, my friend, I have uh, I have not golfed in a couple of weeks, but I have been what? successful this far about bringing my handicap down. So I'm ready to take you on when you're prepared. So no, I'm no, I, I learned my lesson when I golfed with you last time. I, I actually have had to delay my retirement by at least a year, if not more. So. All right, Aaron O'Toole. keep practicing. (laughs) Okay, Aaron O'Toole is a first uh, presser this morning. Uh, How's he doing Mm. so far? It's early, but do you think he's kind of striking the right tone early on? I think he actually struck the right tone the very night he did eventually get named as the leader of the party. And I think that it's unfortunate that it happened in such the wee hours in which it did, though they did pick up, you know, the morning talk radio, like on your show and... They certainly missed being on the front page of my paper the next day, but uh, they they got it today. But I think he set the right tone that night, Jeff. He talked to the other candidates. He talked to caucus. He talked to uh, the the, the, uh, volunteers that all put in time and effort during the leadership race. And most importantly, he also recognized that though the 175,000 conservatives that put ballots forward for the leadership race, he knows that they are engaged but it's about an other Canadians. And so I think the message that he was trying to send was he talked to new Canadians, Canadians who they, he feels wouldn't normally vote for conservative. He talked to LGBTQ. He talked to uh, rich, poor, young, old, um, ethnic minorities, women. I think he was trying to have a very broad stroke to say, it's a big blue tent. I'm the leader of it. I want you in this tent with me. Let's move forward in the country. Thought that was a good tone. Today, you know, it, look, first press conference as leader, all the cameras are there. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit, you know, intense. But Aaron O'Toole is an experienced politician. He will, he will grow into it. He will become more comfortable. Um, but the big test really is going to be what they do during the throne, uh, for the throne speech coming up in September. Right. And I want to ask you about that because one of the things that struck me about his presser this morning was he said the party is ready if Trudeau triggers an election. But mm-hmm. Isn't that the Conservatives' uh, call? Uh, Aren't they kind of driving that uh, if they don't like the throne speech? Or or maybe the throne speech shouldn't even matter. I mean, if you believe that this government, this prime minister, is unethical and is corrupt, uh, as you say, then it's time maybe to put that to the people. 
That's an interesting uh, communications tactic, and I actually think uh, they deserve some credit for it because he's actually throwing it back right at the uh, that, that uh, Trudeau saying that he's itching for an election. It's really, if you look at the numbers, of course, it's going to be the opposition, up to all of the opposition parties. I mean, they're going to have to vote against the throne speech, and that's a confidence motion, and then we're thrust into a federal election. I, I would only caution to the new conservative leader, um, is that really what you want uh, Canadians to to have to contend with during a global pandemic. Um, but but it's even beyond that, Jeff. And, and, and I, I think the challenge they have is they, Aaron O'Toole needs to introduce himself to Canadians. That's why I thought it was actually quite clever when he said, hi, I'm Aaron O'Toole. I thought that was actually, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, a, a good uh, communications tactic. But he needs to present a vision. And conservatives have to be very cognizant of the fact that there are millions of Canadians across this country right now that are heavily relying on government intervention and assistance because of what's happened with uh, global uh, with the global pandemic, meaning CERB, and if it's a business subsidy or if it's the rent or whatever. So austerity measures, which is where conservatives generally win when they are, you know, they are fiscally prudent. They need to be cognizant that that can't be their their message going forward. Um, so he needs to divide. He needs time to devise the strategy, the tactics, the the, the message, the, the platform that he's going to put forward to Canadians. I don't think that that can be ready to go in a month's time. Though they have lots of money in the bank, the debt has been paid off for the party. They have the, the in the coffers already, but are they ready as a party? So, I, I, I mean, I, I know conservatives are itching for change, um, but they need to look at what Canadians are thinking about versus what, you know, their own partisan uh, desires are. It's interesting you say, uh, is the party ready for an election right now? Because we keep hearing that Aaron O'Toole, his number one job, his first job, Adrian, is party unity. Just how divisive do you think things are in the conservative ranks right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think that they are they were as a divisive divisive as they were in 2017 when Andrew Shear became leader. Because if you your re, your listeners will certainly remember that um, one of the things that the Shears camp did not do was really do a good job of keeping Maxine Bernier in the fold. And then of course we saw him sever off and and start his own party as as misguided as that was. It certainly did cause internal consternation and strife. The luxury Aaron O'Toole has is at the very least two of the leadership contenders don't have seats in, in Parliament. So they're not in there, you know, with bad feelings or hurt feelings or, or misinformation. You know, I, I said this when I was uh, when we were covering this on Sunday night that, you know, job one, it may sound it may sound trite, but job one, He's got to get off the phone with every single caucus member and say, we're a team. Let's focus on our political enemy. We're not going to circle the wagons and point the guns inward, which Tories always do. We're going to look at the Trudeau government and their failings. That's where we focus our sights. So he's been doing that from what his campaign has been telling me. And, you know, the message is simple. We have a political common goal, and that is to become the next government. And that doesn't mean we have internal strife. It's also going to matter what he does in terms of reaching across those caucus members who did support Peter McKay, for example. Um, what positions do they get? What what leadership role do they have within the party in, in terms of, you know, holding the government accountable in the We Charity scandal? So the, all of those things matter. Uh, and But that's all part of the politicking of internal um, internal politicking. More broadly, 
I think Aaron O'Toole is well-respected, certainly well-liked in, in caucus. don't think he's going to have those massive uh, strifes that, that other leaders have had to deal with. All right. Maybe, just maybe, feeding that narrative of divisiveness is Doug Ford in his proclamation that he will not be campaigning for Aaron O'Toole. What did you make of that? I mean, there hasn't even been an election uh, called. What do you make of Ford's statement just kind of a day into O'Toole's leadership? Mm, yeah, I... So I'm at two minds of that one. Premier Ford, I think, has done a pretty decent job of trying to stay out. Like he stayed out during the last federal election and you know stays out in this federal election. But Premier Ford also understands that uh, he does have a very good relationship with uh, the finance minister, Christian Freeland. He doesn't want to put that into jeopardy. Ontario needs the assistance from the federal government to partner with them on a number of funding programs. Politics is politics, and it can be nasty, and it can be dirty. Premier Ford doesn't want to get himself in a situation where he has to be on the phone with a Trudeau cabinet minister and saying, oh, by the way, we know you're not supporting us, you're supporting the other guy. That just doesn't, it's it's uncomfortable, it's not necessary. But one of the things that, um, now, and now I'm going to answer it from the O'Toole's perspective, uh, the O'Toole camp's perspective, Doug Ford is enjoying an extraordinarily high uh, uh, popularity uh, measure right now. What if that wanes? Maybe the O'Toole people don't want him, you know, out there campaigning for him, which is what Trudeau relied on last time because the Ford government's uh, approval ratings are very low in the last federal election. So, you know, it, the the cycle is up and down and sideways and backwards and forward. Mm-hmm. But I, I just I, I take out of what Premier Ford said purely as just looking out for the interests of Ontario and not looking out for his partisan interests of a conservative. It, no is that it? Do you think, Adrian, or is there bad feelings from the last election with uh, Doug Ford where he was basically told thanks, but no thanks when it came to the campaign? Oh, I'm sure that is there's some hangover from that. Jeff, uh, politics is a nasty business sometimes, <laughs> and people often have very short memories. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to ask you, too, since we are talking about the uh, premier, we just ran a bit of his uh, press conference uh, last hour from his home base, uh, Etobicoke, big announcement today of a uh, new uh, school there. Uh, yeah. It really struck me, I mean, it has throughout this entire pandemic, and I think a lot of folks, you, you mentioned he's enjoying, uh, you know, some high popularity uh, right now. He really has become uh, adept at handling the media. This, this is a different Doug Ford than he was when he was a, a city councillor. I mean, when he's challenged by the media, he really turns it around now. I don't know if he's gone through some extensive coaching, media training, but he, he's almost become, you know, a master at this. Yeah, that's a you know, it's a really interesting observation because so many of us that, you know, were back in the day with the former mayor, Rob Ford, and of course we worked directly with, with Doug Ford, um, you know, we always saw glimmers of it. Uh, some were, Sometimes they were challenges, to be sure. I don't want to make light of those. But I, I think what some observers, myself included, we always knew he had it in him. But this take away sort of, you know, the communications professional perspective. Let's just look from the average Ontarian. Doug Ford is a very plain spoken, straight talker. He says really what's on other people's minds. He just gets a very big microphone to do it. And so there's a relative relatability. 
and and you know he doesn't talk above people's heads and even with the media you know he he will answer a question from someone from 640 and then he says their name you know there's a familiarity there too but doug, uh, doug ford has become more comfortable um at at communicating the message that hit what his government is doing um they they are trying to you know make headway with with getting the teacher unions on board that's proving to be a challenge but i think overall they have really done um, that really that really Doug Ford is really, you know, grown into that, which you expect from any good politician, Jeff, you expect them to to grow into the role and understand the gravity of, of their their position. And, and I think from the Ford's there. Yeah, you know, I wish I could remember the question off the top of my head, but he was really challenged on something instead of getting his back up and getting testy he said you know thanks for the question that that's really interesting i'm glad you brought that up which i thought you know that that's kind of a master stroke at dealing with uh, what is a tough question well it is and it buys you time as well to formulate your answer <laughs> <laughs> true enough Part but it doesn't turn in yeah it doesn't turn into this face off though there, there's yeah. a free pro tip for your listeners. It's Media Training 101. Thank the person for the question. It buys you time. <laughs> yeah, M might be something Aaron O'Toole is taking note of as well. Adrian Batra, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. School bus drivers, the latest to raise the back-to-school red flag. They have a number of concerns they made public today as the countdown to back-to-class clicks down. Debbie Montgomery is with Unifor, the union that represents drivers, and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Debbie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I apologize. I am outdoors, so I hope I'm coming through okay. You are loud and clear, and uh, not a worry. This day and age with the uh, pandemic, uh, we have faced worse when it comes to communications. <laughs> somebody, somebody just being outdoors is actually a, a bit of a relief. Okay, uh, what are the concerns, uh, the major concerns of school bus drivers? As I mentioned, the uh, countdown is on here a couple of weeks ago until back to school. Well, we've, we've mandated and, and put it out there that there are several real concerns that we have. Um, a lot of them have to deal with, um, you know, we're, we're kind of the last to know what's going on. Um, there has been no discourse with uh, school bus drivers as frontline workers, and that's evident by the, the plans that have been haphazardly put together. So, um, you know, we, we've heard a lot about physical distancing. We've got a lot of public health information regarding physical distancing. Children are being told when they get to the bus stop, be sure to physical distance at your bus stop, and then you get on a bus, and that's where it ends. Um, okay. do, do you feel as if uh, drivers, they've been overlooked uh, by the government in their preparations for back to school? Absolutely, drivers feel that way. Um, you know, when the government put out their 20 or 21 page document about a safe return to school, a safe September, um, there was only, you know, a couple of paragraphs about school bus transportation. And that we feel is a very integral part of the, uh, the school community. Yeah, what sort of uh, training, communication has gone on with the government and school bus drivers? Uh, any at all? And I'm thinking about things such as. How many students uh, per bus, where they should be uh, seated, uh, what the expectations are? Uh, have there been any, I don't know, seminars or courses for drivers? Um, I, I think some of the operators are just trying to start to put their plans together. 
Um, so they are starting to communicate with our, our, our drivers. The problem is, um, you know, obviously we have great concerns about what we're being told. Um, it, it's hodgepodge all across the province. Every board uh, has their own set of rules or directives that they seem to want to follow. Um, the majority of them are, are speaking that there will be full buses. They have no intention of, of doing any physical distancing. That's very worrisome when, you know, the um, provincial mandate appears to be that, that children um, grades three and under will not have to wear a mask. So that's right, one because of the I was drivers would like to see. It's a very enclosed, confined space. Um, when you see a, a big bus driving, just to give people an idea of, of what they carry, when you see a big bus driving down the road, that's pretty much uh, close to the equivalent of three classrooms in that vehicle when it's full. And that was, uh, you know, a major uh, concern of mine uh, when I was reading what, uh, you know, your union, what Unifor uh, put out uh, earlier is the fact that, yes, if you do have a full uh, school bus, how can you physically uh, distance? And if not, then you need to wear masks in an indoor public space. Will all the kids have masks? Will they have them on? Keep them on. And can a bus driver be responsible for all of that plus safely driving the bus? Exactly. And you've just hit on another concern. You know, school bus drivers could use help on any given day. Um, we all know that kids will be kids. And can you imagine having 72 kids yourself to look after with no assistance while navigating through rush hour traffic, construction, poor weather? Um, it's, it's kind of a dastardly thing to do on a good day. And in COVID times, Want, you know, wanting to keep the kids protected, ensure that they're in the proper seats and they remain there um, and, and give them the attention they deserve and need. A, a driver can't possibly do all that and safely navigate yeah. that bus. Yeah, Debbie, it's kind of ironic because we've heard from teachers throughout this uh, entire process about classroom size. We really haven't talked a lot about uh, school bus size and uh, how many is too many. Yes, and, and drivers noted that right out of the gate. That was something that they were quite disturbed about. Again, um, you know, we, we really feel that some physical distancing of some sort would be appropriate for the school buses. Uh, masking passengers um, would be appropriate for the school buses. There's a lot of concerns being expressed that all of a sudden now, with all the responsibilities a school bus driver has, they are now being tasked with, being professional cleaners and um, again we're still waiting to hear about the products the type of cleaning but that has certainly never been part of a school bus driver's responsibility to deep clean and sanitize the vehicle um, and the assumption that you know we're going to do that or be able to do that is a little bit over the top um, very difficult again when you see that big bus and you think about minimally two or three times a day. And I say that minimally. It could be much more often. We don't know how they've designed the routes yet. For a driver to have to sanitize and do a deep cleaning um, in order to keep the kids safe, it's a lot of work. We have a lot of seniority, senior drivers who might find that work way too physical and difficult for them. 
Sure. And not only that, it seems to me when we talk about a deep clean, and that's what we want and what we need to ensure the safety of our kids, students, and the drivers uh, as well, don't we want you know, a professional company with trained personnel that know what they're doing when it comes to uh, cleaning to, to come in and do that deep clean and uh, make sure that that bus day in and day out is sanitized properly? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, as far as we're aware, public transit, the drivers aren't doing their, their deep cleaning of their buses. Um, they've never been required to do that. School buses never been required to do that. And, uh, you know, there's several components. Number one, drivers are very worried. Will I do it right? Will I get this right? I don't want to be responsible for missing a spot or, uh, you know. And, and then there's obviously there's been no compensation built into that, just the expectation that it will be done. So these are some of the pressing concerns. Yeah, Debbie, finally I wanted to ask you about uh, staffing when you talk about expectations and you know, adding on uh, to the job and further expectations. Is there an expectation that there's going to be somebody other than the driver on the bus to ensure distancing for the kids and that they've all got their masks on and they're keeping them on? Because from what we understand is there's problems just getting enough people behind the wheel to get enough drivers for the beginning of the school year. Well, absolutely, and and thank you. That That is one of our asks as well. We think it will be very important to have adult monitors to assist with that. As we stated, um, you know, on a, on a good day w- without uh, COVID and, and, and to worry about, um, you know, the, the drivers cannot do it. They cannot do it. It's very, very difficult. So they will certainly need some assistance with that. All right. Some significant concerns to be sure. Debbie, I appreciate your time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak to uh, the, the bus driver's concerns. You bet. There goes Debbie Montgomery. She is with Unifor, the union that is representing school bus drivers, as we mentioned, just the latest to raise the back-to-school red flag. And when it comes to returning to the classroom, there's some increased calls for saliva-based COVID tests. That still needs to receive approval, but some would like to see that come to schools. Let's welcome in Dr. Ray Watt Dionandan. He's an epidemiologist and joins us now for more on this and a couple of other COVID headlines. Dr. Dionandan, nice to have you back on the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, Let's talk about these saliva tests. There's calls, as I mentioned, to institute them into schools because the thought is they're easier to administer to young children in particular rather than that swab test up the nasal passage. Uh, Is that correct? Yeah, it's totally correct. That's its major advantage. It's you just spin into a cup. That's all it is. It goes through the same lab process, though. It has to be shipped to a public health lab, and it takes a couple of days to get the results back. But you don't need as many chemicals to process the saliva tests, and in the long run, they are easier and cheaper. All right, is the turnaround time? It's not any better, sorry. It is. Um, it's about the same uh, length of turnaround time, but it doesn't require as many chemicals. Okay, and how effective is the saliva test? Is it as good as the nasal swab? Well, that's a big question, right? So the FDA, I think, has about five saliva tests that are allowed in the USA already, including a famous one called Saliva Direct, which gets all the attention. And so far, Canada doesn't have one that's been uh, accepted. Um, the the data is a little unclear, but one paper that's not been peer-reviewed yet suggests that it's the same as a swab test 90% of the time. The difference is that it doesn't use this thing called PCR, which 
amplifies the signal of the swab of the of the sample and as a result you're going to get a lot of false negatives um, the question is are is that number of false negatives acceptable to us that's the question we have to wrestle with when we um, assess these tests but it doesn't have to be the same deployment as the swab test it can be used in a surveillance capacity not necessarily in a diagnostic capacity so these tests the more we get the more diverse number we get and kinds that we get we can use them in different ways Okay, but that is the essential question that those that are in charge and will approve or not approve this, that's the one they're going to answer, not whether or not this might be better for schools and uh, younger students and getting them tested. I believe so. Health Canada works on the sensitivity specificity basis. How good are the diagnostics? And then it's the administrator's jobs to figure out how to deploy them. But yeah, to answer your question, it would be great for children and for you and me. I mean, like, I don't want to get stuff stuck in my nose. I'd rather spin into a cup as well. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right. Uh, meantime, the University of Hong Kong scientists there claim to have the first evidence of somebody being reinfected with the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, what exactly, doctor, do we know about this? Okay, so we've been having uh, reports of reinfection for many months now, and most of those have not really come to fruition. They've been testing failures for the most part. This one looks probably like it's going to be a genuine reinfection. One gentleman was reinfected about four months after he recovered from an initial infection with a different strain of the virus and had a, a lesser serious response. Now, we shouldn't panic about this. Uh, there's a reason we studied the bell curve back in public school. It tells us that for most human characteristics, the majority of people have the same response, but with a large enough sample, you're going to get a couple of outliers. We now have a global sample of people getting coronavirus, and so you're going to get some people who behave differently. So this will not be a common occurrence, but it will happen for some people, um, this, this predisposition to reinfection. But again, he was immune, we think, for several months, and that's not a bad thing. Glad you brought up the bell curve. I forgot about that. I loved being graded on the bell curve when I was in school. <laughs> uh, so were we kind of naive, doctor? Do you think that this would be one and done when it comes to COVID-19? Well, the scientists never thought it was one and done. We always knew that this was a coronavirus, much like the common cold. So the common cold we get many times. The big question is, what does it mean for vaccine development? And the answer is not a lot. Because of vaccines, we have better control over the immune response that a vaccine will give. That's why we prefer artificial immunity through a vaccine than natural immunity through infection. With a vaccine, we can give several doses if we need to be, or a larger dose, to make sure we have a, a larger antibody response that gives us immunity, hopefully for a few months, if not years, possibly lifetime, although I would doubt if it gives us lifetime immunity. Yeah, there's been so many comparisons between COVID and the coronavirus and influenza. Is this just another similarity? When you get the flu shot, they take, uh, from what I understand, the three most popular strains from the year before. And is this uh, the, the case with uh, the virus with uh, COVID, that uh, there just could be different strains we're, that we're now discovering and seeing? Eventually, that will be the case. Right now, there are a couple of dominant strains and we, and so far, one vaccine is probably good enough for all of them because the strains aren't that much different. It's like different races of human being. We all look different, but the same bullet will kill all of us. So the same vaccine should, should uh, deal with all the strains of, of the COVID vaccine. In a few generations, there will be a diversity of COVID-style viruses. And then every year we'd have to reassess what the COVID vaccine formulation will look like, much like the flu. I anticipate in two, three, four, five years time, getting your yearly COVID vaccine will be the same as getting your yearly flu vaccine. It'll be part of our regular lives. 
All right. Meantime, there's been a surge in British Columbia that's been reported on for uh, several days now. And we're also hearing, doctor, that COVID might be making a bit of a comeback here in Ontario. Now, I know the number's gone over and it seems like it's, I don't know, like a psychological watermark, that 100 caseload uh, per day. It's been over that a, a couple of times the uh, last uh, few weeks. Is it is it uh, making a bit of a comeback in this province? It is, but not to the point where we have to be worried about it that much. Keep in mind, there's nothing magical happening here. The more we have human interaction, the more we'll have viral spread. And human interaction is caused by the economy opening up and people being more social. So good weather, restaurants and bars being open, all these things will drive the numbers. There's no mystery here. We kind of expected it to happen. I was hoping it wouldn't be as high as it has, it has become. But it, we may need to implement some new strategies to drive the numbers down again because we've got to get them down as low as possible before school starts. To keep those schools safe, we've got to keep the community load as low as possible. Do you anticipate then that we might have to reclose businesses, do some rollbacks? I mean, how do we know? Is there a magic number that uh, if we hit that, then perhaps we uh, open too much too soon? I don't know what numbers the province is using, but I would advise a number of metrics. Number one is the number of new cases per day. That's the incidence rate. Number two is this thing we call the reproduction number. That's the average number of new cases produced by an old case. We like that to be less than one. And across Ontario, it is less than one right now. And three would be the the percentage of tests that we do that come back positive. We'd like that to be less than one or two percent. And right now it is under one percent in Ontario. So things are looking okay. But any day, they could change direction. So we have to keep an eye on all the metrics and and make decisions based upon that. I anticipate that any clawback of regulations and and openings will be done on a regional basis, hopefully not a a broad stroke for the entire province. I mean, North Bay shouldn't have to be punished for what's happening in Windsor, for example. All right. Good information as always. Doctor, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Be well. There's Dr. Raywat Dionandan, an epidemiologist. And that's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Jeff MacArthur Show weekdays from 1 till 3 right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.